0: Welcome to the 13th episode of the Rain Race Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about the ongoing McLaren IndyCar rumors. We're going to be previewing the Le Mans test day, and we're going to be recapping the Monaco Grand Prix and Indianapolis 500. I'm Chris Aurelio. This is Rain Race. Let's go. I'm joined here alongside Kevin Rollins. Hi. Hi. Not Kyle Cuthbertson again. Um, I might have explained this before, but he's about as unreliable as a 2010 Peugeot 908 at Lamar,
1: which are still
2: running, by the way.
0: All right, yeah, but we'll we'll just skip over that part. There and, goes that
2: whole reliability
0: thing. Oh well, there's his sub right there, uh, David Land.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I James Hinchcliffe bought out uh, Kyle's ride. Uh, he's he's Jay Howard, and uh, and I bought him out, so it's all good. That joke right. would be relevant if that had actually happened. I mean,
0: you could happen. have made a 2011 Hunter Rae joke, but... But that's way outdated. I try to be fresh. fresh. Yeah, but it's fresh but inaccurate. So what are you going to do?
1: Here's a here's a new one. Um, So Kyle is as bad as Lena Gade, so we fired him and replaced him with David. <laughs> <laughs> now that's fresh. I
0: think we're going to talk about that a little bit later. So... Uh, Starting off in the news here, one of the few news stories to go over this week, uh, McLaren. That's like the biggest one ever. Yeah, McLaren with their ongoing IndyCar talks. Now, Zach Brown confirmed that they're eyeing an entry into the IndyCar series starting next season. Um, And he's also in Detroit this weekend. Also, I should have said this earlier, but I just want to explain why this episode is going up so late. Um, Talk to my work. Uh, they, they, got in the way of everything this week and we'll continue to be doing that next week. So, um,
2: okay. But there, there is a little bit of a caveat. It's not just Zach Brown. Uh, this has kind of been buried a little bit, but he's showing up with Jill DeFerrin, who they hired in the middle of May, uh, to quote unquote, evaluate the program, which pretty much everybody in the know and the scuttlebutt around the garage was, that was pretty much confirmation that, uh, McLaren is coming next year. Now, and
1: also, to kind of link it, remember, DeFerrin was Alonzo's driver coach, or one of them, during his Indy 500 run last year.
2: Well, that's a good segue, Kevin, because Alonzo's manager is also going to be there with uh, DeFerrin and Zach Brown at Detroit. I Let's also put saw, the pieces together, folks.
0: I saw a thing on Reddit, I think, about a, like a quote-unquote secret meeting between Alonzo and McLaren somewhere uh, in between Catalonia and Monaco. Um, Didn't really pick up any details on that meeting, but obviously it adds a little bit of fuel to the fire. So obviously, Fernando Alonso is the biggest driver that people are keeping their eyes on for a potential driver entry next year if McLaren should end up in IndyCar. But also, I saw this on Twitter from the person who first broke the story, uh, saying... Scott Dixon's name has been going around the paddock a little bit, so. No. What do you think about I, that one?
2: I, I highly doubt it. I highly no, doubt it. He's gonna die before he lives leaves Ganassi. That's. I mean, yeah. Exactly. <laughs>
1: well, he almost did last year. Keep in mind.
2: Yeah. Well, I I didn't mean quite that literally, but yeah. I mean, I, Scott Dixon. He's gonna get the Rick Mears treatment at Ganassi, like uh, Rick Mears has at Penske, where as long as he wants a job, he's gonna be able to have it. Now that being said. A Kiwi driving a Kiwi branded car. Uh, but, uh, certainly, I think he would consider it. I mean, you'd be foolish not to. But um, I, I, if it's if it's a McLaren effort, at least for the first year, uh, especially when it's a partner team with with Ray Hall or Andretti, uh, it's going to be a one car operation at least for now. Possibly two if Alonso doesn't do a full time deal and just does Indy and a couple other the marquee events, which has kind of been rumored as well. Um, but I think it's only going to be a one-car effort uh, you, in, in 19.
0: You talk about that partnership with Andretti and Ray Hall and Kyle and I talked about this when they first broke this story back in the middle of May. Um, so right now it seems like, again, should they enter? Nothing's completely confirmed yet. Uh, but it pretty much is. Well, if it you're, yeah, if you're you, then it is. So um, they're saying it would most likely be a partnership for the first season, like we've been saying, Andretti or Ray Hall. From what I've heard, it sounds like Andretti is front and foremost the primary team that they're trying to partner up with. And Ray Hall just kind of seems to be that team in the back that if some deal falls through with Andretti, they're always there as a backup. But of course, they already have experience with Andretti. Um, Zach Brown and Michael Andretti are good friends at this point uh, with the whole Indy 500 in 2017. Um, so I'd see that as the most likely partnership we see, and then they also talked about moving on to a standalone effort in 2020.
1: Okay, well, so my my thing about that is I could see the McLaren Honda McLaren Honda thing, yeah, right. Uh, the McLaren Andretti relationship be re- reunited, but they'd have to like be willing to like accept the fact that they'll have Honda power unless Andretti goes back to Chevy, which you know, those rumors are going to get kicked up eventually because no secret that Honda sort of has a deficit to make up now. Um, David, what's your thoughts that, on that?
2: That would make sense, Kevin, but they're also talking to Ray Hall. Uh, if, if they were talking to another Chevy team, I might be able to believe that. Uh, they've got two Honda powered teams that they're talking to. I'd, I'd hazard a guess that the Ray Hall team is only in there as a negotiating tactic to get more money out of Andretti or a better deal out of Andretti uh, because. As far as I'm aware, Andretti is, is by far and away, especially considering on the month of May performance between the two teams, uh, the team that I certainly I would go with if I was partnering a big program like McLaren with this team. Of course, the past history as well helps with uh, how successful that partnership was in 2017. Uh, I would definitely say that, uh, and also because of the fact that we've heard in the past that Michael can do Theoretically, if the funding's there, five or six full-time cars. Uh, that that seems almost perfect uh, for McLaren. The in- infrastructure's already there. They've already only got to get in there and learn how to do it uh, for the 2020 season.
0: So, I mean, the most far-fetched out of context, uh, you heard it here first, folks theory that I came up with a couple days ago, um, where that if... McLaren joins IndyCar, and if Alfa Romeo joins IndyCar as an engine supplier, could we see McLaren switch to Alfa Romeo power when they become a standalone team, or a couple years after they become a standalone team, and then have Ferrari power in Formula One, because Alfa Romeo and Ferrari are pretty much the same group? That's the most far-fetched idea I've had in my head, but, I don't know, it's one that seems like it could almost make sense.
2: There's a lot of dominoes that have to fall to get that to, to happen. Yeah, uh, I'm not as confident about Alfa Romeo as I would have been prior to May. Uh, it seems like when they announced the new engine formula, that would have been the time that you would have thought that we would have gotten another engine manufacturer announcement. We didn't. Uh, and considering how conservative the regulations were uh, in the similarities to our current regulations, it, it certainly seems to me that At least now, or at this point, they're looking at just keeping Honda and Chevy happy, and they're not particularly... And I could be wrong. I've been wrong in the past, but it seems like they're not particularly pursuing another manufacturer right now, at least reading between the lines. I mean, I'd love to see it, but I just think there's too many dominoes that need to to fall for Alfa Romeo to be coming in, especially with McLaren.
0: So just a couple more stories related to uh, Indianapolis since... It's been almost two weeks since our last episode. Um, The first big one that came out was Lena Gade being released from Schmidt-Peterson. This came after Hinchcliffe was, of course, bumped from the Indianapolis 500. And it was announced officially, I believe, Wednesday or Thursday of last week. Um, So, quite an interesting thing. I don't think anyone really saw that coming any of the uh, i did
2: you, oh we we did we got we got we saw that. that coming from, we so, got we knew it was happening on bump day
0: well, well um, i mean like but without any no, sources though without anybody oh telling no you. it's exactly. out of left field yeah oh i know yeah
1: i mean the thing was you, you hear the little talks in the garage area and most of the time you gotta take that stuff with a grain of salt mm-hmm. um but the thing about the Lena Gate gade was it it, would, it didn't surprise me at the end because after the whole hinge ordeal, someone's head had to roll. And unfortunately, it was my favorite engineer in the paddock. Um, again, we heard the mumbles, and me and Kyle kind of dismissed it, sort of, um, because the next day, uh, the Monday practice, we seen her, or on pole day, actually, we seen her in the garages. And
2: on Everything Monday. Everything
1: was normal.
2: I saw her on Monday.
1: Yeah, so did I. And then, obviously, we had that four-day or three-day break from the track where nothing happened. And then, during that time period, it was announced that she was let go. Now, the thing that kind of bothers me was um, they the, the way that Schmidt kind of made their press release, how they made it sound like it was mutual, it wasn't. She was fired. <laughs> I mean, if it was well, mutual, i sure Lena you. would not have deleted all of her social medias.
2: <laughs> that whole situation really, really stunk. It, I mean, it, again, like you said, she was at the track. She was in uniform, biking around in the garage area, presumably working on the race setup for the other three cars. Um, just, it, maybe, he, here's my theory. I just thought of this. They may have been keeping her on the payroll just in case they bought a ride, in which case they would have kept her on to engineer the car for the 500 because they didn't have another option available to them. But as soon as it was official that they weren't going to be in the show, uh, out goes Lena.
0: And now, I think... Well, overall, I mean, that's because, just kind of a a shitty situation, if I'm honest, because... Oh, for sure. Yeah. It, it's not like she was a terrible race engineer by any standards whatsoever. It was her second oval race ever. And um, and they
2: almost won the first one. Yeah, both and cars. They were,
0: they were, Hinch was fifth in points before Indianapolis. So... I mean, a little bit of a, a premature move, I'd say so, but.
1: SPM handled her so badly. I mean, they really didn't give her a chance to. Here's the thing that with Hinchcliffe on bump day, I mean, there was a bunch of circumstances that could be to blame. And I mean, it was just a bad situation all around. And they really didn't give Lena a proper chance to show what she could do. Uh, besides the five races that she compete or she engineered prior to Indy, I mean, it sucks. It's racing, but I think SPM should have given her another shot at it. Um, and I have a distaste for SPM, not because I'm biased because Lena Gade's awesome because she used to work for Audi Sport, but, you know, any engineer should not be that unceremoniously uncere- fired. Now, with Lena, um, I know some people were like, oh, well, she's a sports car engineer. She needs to go back to where she came from. I heard that from one person in particular, um, and she probably will. She'll, I could see her going to Mazda Team Yost in IMSA.
2: Well, I think yeah. a lot of to do with the firing was that Arrow needed a head. I don't think it was necessarily SPM. I think it was Arrow. They needed to su- show somebody on the board, point a finger at somebody, and say, okay, it's their fault. We got rid of them, and now let's move forward. I feel like that that feels like a corporate suit thing to do, and and that's what it feels like to me. I don't think necessarily the team would have wanted to get rid of her, but somebody's head had to roll.
0: Uh, staying on the topic of Indianapolis here, uh, obviously we saw Scuderia Corsa with a phenomenal performance, especially in the, uh, ending stages of last week's Indy 500, and they have announced recently that they're already committed to a 2019 Indianapolis 500 entry, so, uh, I don't believe they said whether or not it would be with, uh, Hall Letterman or even, like, any partnership yet, um, Perhaps it's way too, yeah, it's perhaps way too early. Yeah, perhaps they could go on that. as a standalone, but I think for them to already be committed to another year of Indianapolis five hundred entries, it's just fantastic news to hear, especially this early on.
1: Well, I mean, obviously their driver is going to be Oriol Servia. I'm going to say that right now. Obviously, it's going to be Servia because there's like quite a few perks with guys like Servia and Sato. Like I don't know, those guys are Honda drivers and they get free engines. And that's a perk.
0: Yeah, that's a small sure. plus. But
2: <laughs> well, I, I would say this is I mean, I said it in the red pill. This is this is an incredibly positive sign for the series. It really is. Uh to have to have a team that came in for this race, uh, qualified by the skin of their teeth, no doubt about it. But once they got in the show, they were very competitive. Uh and you've got you've gotta hand it to IndyCar. I think they've really done a good job handling all of this situation, especially with the bump day that uh, you kept pretty much everybody happy. Uh, and uh, you would think that Pippa Man's still going to be back, despite the fact that you would get bumped. It uh, seems like Arrow is going to be back. And certainly, I would say most of the small teams that uh, made the show will be back as well, plus the Laziers and plus McLaren and, and all these other uh, elements out there floating around. There's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of cars that could be uh, entering the Indy 500 next year. Let's just say that.
1: And I mean, you know, there's that age old discussion about, well, age old now about, you know, the effect that bump day had. And it had nothing but a positive effect because it adds to the lure of the race and it makes making the race that much more special Mm
0: -hmm. uh,
1: again. And I think that's going to draw teams as well, not to mention the cheaper cars.
0: And the last bit of news here I want to go over before we jump into the recaps. Uh, mentioned this in the previous episode as well. Both Manor cars uh, being forced to skip spa due to funding issues related to CEFC, which is their title sponsor. Well, the good news is that both cars will be on the grid at Le Mans, um, which is fantastic news to hear. There's a little bit of concern uh, during the spa weekend whether or not they'd show up to Le Mans, but they are there for the test this weekend, and... I can't 100% confirm this yet, but I've heard that they have a new title sponsor in the form of Baxi, which is a Chinese company. And they also sponsored uh, Jackie Chan DC before, I think, and also Signatech Alpine. When they,
1: were with, they, they sponsored Jackie Chan when they were partnered with Alpine in yeah. 2016.
0: Yep. Um, um, so obviously that's, that's great news to hear. We'll have all of the LMP one cars on the grid for Le Mans. Also, there was, um, some drama with the BR one cars and, uh, safety concerns, but all of them are committed to Le mob at the current moment, which is obviously mm-hmm. fantastic to hear.
1: Well, here's actually a little bit of an interesting note. Um, I was catching up on the news and stuff heading into the test day this weekend and the BR engineering cars are technically going to be running illegally in terms of the stuff that they have on the car is not homologated yet.
0: Well, it's the test day though, so it's not, you don't have to have all the parts homologated for the test day, I don't think.
1: Yeah, but the parts that are not homologated are the ones that they put in, put on the car to prevent them from flipping again. So they're waiting on approval from the FIA, which it will probably get granted considering it's a safety thing. So it's nothing really to, to worry about. They're definitely going to be on the grid with the updates. I, it, I just thought it was an interesting note.
2: Yeah. Cool. Well, the FIA would be stupid to, uh, to prevent them from entering or getting on the grid for the race because pretty much at this point, LMP1 really needs, like you said, Chris, they need all of those cars on the grid that they can because otherwise it's going to be a black eye if four cars are on the grid by the time they get to the race. Uh, especially considering that everybody was was you know banging on about the death of this class in the in the winter, and now we're here, almost at Le Mans. And it's what eight, ten cars. Um, yeah. It almost and looks more healthy than it did with all the hybrids in the class.
1: And after Le Mans, it's supposed to be eleven cars with the second bipolis. So you know.
0: And I really don't want to speculate about BOP and EOT.
2: Let, let, let's not.
1: Before okay? we get let, into lap times, I, I
0: almost
2: got Kevin going on that. So I'm. Just, one second away from making that.
0: 40. Yeah. I'm going to leave that <laughs> okay. to next week's episode. Kevin, yeah, let's show Well, no, let's go back a week to the, to the recaps from Sunday, uh, starting off with the Monaco Grand Prix. Now these two chumps were in Indianapolis at the time.
3: And I, I watched was, a
2: lap. We were, we were watching <laughs> I watched on one greatest... lap.
1: Now in our defense, we were watching the greatest race in motorsports. That tops Monaco, the Daytona 500, any other stupid show that NASCAR can Wait, put
2: on. No, I went to the Indy 500. I didn't go to the Coke 600. No, no, I was saying that we went to the greatest... Uh, no, I know. I was at the Indy 500. I wasn't at the Coke 600. I know. <laughs> Kevin, I got you're the, not picking you up on the... <laughs> this, are you? <laughs> <laughs>
1: of
2: course. Kevin, I was implying that the Coke 600 was the greatest
0: race in the world.
2: Shame on you. Be- because it is, right? The totally. Coke
0: 150, 150, 150,
2: 150. You mean? <laughs> oh God! <laughs> <laughs> anyway. yeah, I was in a B dubs and I actually watched some of that race. I couldn't believe how much caution there was. Hey, did you it's see like the there was a Twitter car got spinning night? out? I saw the B, yeah, the B dubs Twitter. That was hilarious. Oh my
0: God! Oh yeah! <laughs> oh, yeah. They were throwing let's,
2: shade at Wendy's.
0: Let's, yeah, oh, no, yeah, they were saying a lot of other questionable things too, but. Oh, were they? I just. Saw oh the yeah. Wendy's. Yeah, let's oh, oh, no. oh, let's no. steer off that though. Did
2: they, did they go down the Roseanne path?
0: Oh no! Well, a little more than that. <laughs>
2: oh, a
1: little I'll more than that. I'll send you a that. screenshot oh, after
0: this episode's over. But, um, um, but uh, I
1: will I will say this though: David's had his moment of fame at B Dubs. So.
0: Oh yeah,
2: yeah. Oh, I forgot I could hack the TV. I should have done that. <laughs> she got revenge and put me on the TV.
0: Hack the TV, just meaning you're gonna Chromecast one of your own videos to the smart <laughs> well, TV he, that they he, have here's on the wall. The thing.
2: After, uh, here's the thing, after the Indy 500, I had to, like, go into hibernation for, like, two days. Like, I literally, like, could not function at all. I just kept falling asleep for two days because that's what happens when you spend an entire month at Indianapolis just going nonstop for, you know, however many three weeks
0: or whatever it is.
1: That's what it feels like to have an actual job.
2: I know, right? Damn. I got to do it more often.
0: Should we get back to the Monaco Grand Prix? (laughs) Well, first off, I, I just want to start off on Monaco here with Daniel Ricciardo because there are uh. few laps in this modern age of racing where safety is a major priority where I just look at the lap and I say, wow. And it just, <laughs> it just really kind of like leaves shock on your face. But when you look at the onboard from Ricciardo in his qualifying lap at Monaco, my God, that's one of those few laps nowadays that really just dropped my jaw. Um I mean, it was phenomenal. It was almost two and a half seconds up on the qualifying time from last year. So um, props to him and brought that pace into the race. So
1: he had engine issues.
0: Yeah, he had engine issues. Um, I believe they say he was down 100, 150 horsepower. I think it was because of the MGU-H or K. I don't know which. I think it was the MGU-H, but don't quote me on that. Um, wasn't working, and he was down 100 to 150 horsepower. And Sebastian Vettel was pretty much crawling right behind him the whole time, two, three seconds back, even caught up within a second at a couple of points, but just never really could find a way to get past him. And that seemed to bring up a lot of questions uh, about the competitiveness of, of Monaco. Now, I don't know why these questions were just brought up now, because I think it should be quite obvious to anybody, given the layout of Monaco and the cars you're racing on it, that you're not going to get competitive racing pretty much at all. It's not what Monaco is all about. Um, But yeah, it was definitely interesting to see that the cars really could fend off or that Ricardo could fend off Vettel even with that much of a horsepower deficit.
2: Well, the... Monaco is 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 and it has and pretty much always will be the traditional race of Formula One. It, it's it's essentially actually I mean, we we make fun of races as parades. It really is a parade. It, it, that's essentially what the Monaco Grand Prix is. The, the race is essentially determined in qualifying unless you have a 96 situation where there's a lot of rain and Olivier Panis wins because he's one of three cars left running in the race. that's always what it's going to be. And I kind of find it funny that there's a contrast, a major contrast between the same kind of discussion that's been had at the end of the Monaco Grand Prix versus the end of the Indy 500. Same complaints, but then you look at Twitter and Fernando Alonso is talking about how competitive and exciting the Indy 500 is. And yet all IndyCar fans could talk about is how boring the Indy 500 is. Funny how that works.
1: I mean, the problem with Monaco is, and I mean, usually I would like criticize Lewis Hamilton because he's complaining about something because he didn't win but he has a legitimate reason to complain because, you know, the cars, they had troubles passing before on such a narrow track. So what do we do with the cars? We make them wider. And if you try to pass, you're going to end up on your lid like we saw last year with... Um,
2: with Fairline with and uh, Butter, yeah. Button, Butter, Butter.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and, then you see, and then you see what happened this year with, I believe it was Leclerc and Hartley.
2: Well, that was a yeah. break failure. Yeah, that was, that a break was a break failure, failure, wasn't it? They literally told Hartley, like, you've got to get away from him. And, he, and then the next corner he got uh, run up the back of. That's kind of funny.
0: I mean, there were people who even went as far as saying, why is the Monaco Grand Prix still a thing? And, like, I, I just had to cringe at those comments because if you watch Monaco expecting an exciting or competitive race, you're looking at the wrong thing, buddy. Um, yeah. I mean... And I have no problem with Monaco the way it is. Honestly, I love the Monaco Grand Prix. I just think it's one of those races where you can kind of feel the the purpose behind it. You can feel the energy of it. And, in my opinion, it's one of the few races nowadays that still holds that feeling. Um, But to go as far as saying that they should even consider dropping it from the calendar in the future... Oh, please. It's just so far-fetched and unnecessary, especially as one of the Triple Crown races... um, I mean, that's I mean, just one of the biggest Monaco, complaints I have coming from all that.
1: Monaco's like Indianapolis and Le Mans. No matter how much of a shit show they are, they will never, ever die. No matter how bad the races get.
2: Oh, I well, guess. that was the other thing I kept hearing about Indianapolis. is uh, People were talking about, oh, the crowd's going to go down next next year because the, the race was boring. Uh, you guys do realize... How many people show up at the Indy 500 simply because A, it's the Indy 500, and B, it's a big party. Like, the crowd sizes are not effect- affected really all that much by racing quality. There's probably about 100,000 true racing fans there and 200,000 people there for the party and the spectacle. That's always wanna- what these big races have been, like Le Mans and Monaco. Same thing. There's, there's the hardcore race fans, no doubt about it, but there's also a big party festival atmosphere built around these races.
0: There yeah. really isn't much to talk about wrapping up on Monaco here, because like we've been going over, it wasn't a very action filled race, but Ricardo was able to hold off Vettel and take home the victory. I think Kyle actually predicted the top three correct um, well, that was know, easy He probably that, just but...
2: cheated. he probably looked at the qualifying results and no said, well, there you we go. Did
0: we did it before qualifying because we were uh, we knew that qualifying determines the results of Monaco barring any major incidents, but uh, so yeah, we did it all the way before qualifying, and I think he picked the top three correct. I know he picked Ricardo to win, so props to you, Kyle. Shame you're not here, waiting for your reason on why. But anyway, let's get on He's to asleep. what will definitely be the longest portion of this episode, Indy Five Hundred recap. And this is
1: the this is the part where me and David start doing our usual thing.
2: Oh god.
0: Yeah. Please, I'll try to rein it in please, a little bit. Yeah, just please watch my
2: 39-minute rant on it if you really want me to go hard. Yeah. I'll try. To, I'll try to keep it reined in.
0: We'll start the ball rolling here. I'll just say that race from pretty much lap 30. I already felt an iro5 racing vibe there at Indianapolis because it was kind of the leader pulls out and you have some action some battling going on behind. But nobody really could seem to pass the leader that much on track. And that's well, me, really what I saw back when I started watching IndyCar back in 08, 09, 2010, pretty much.
2: Well, let me take the opportunity to toot my own horn. And actually that of uh, of Kevin and a few other of the people who came on the IndyCar Red Pill live shows. I mean, we, I, I was shocked that the people, either either the people in the IndyCar bubble, I guess you could say, either didn't believed that the race was going to be like this or they didn't want to say the race was going to be like this because they had interests elsewhere uh to make sure they weren't saying oh well the universal era is going to make the racing worse uh we said from pretty much day one uh i even think i said it all the way back when they revealed the car wasn't gonna have bumpers anymore that we were gonna see a more spread out race we were gonna see aero push become a thing again and we, were, we weren't going to see the slingshot racing that's that's happened in the last few years. And it was obvious from the first practice session. But yet, for for almost the entire practice week, we heard that they were going to be changing the lead twice a lap. I think Simon Pagino said that. I'm like, there's no way. <laughs> it turned out that was exactly the case. It was, yeah, like you said, it was an old-school Indy 500, for sure.
1: You know, the, the sad part is, a lot of the people, and I've seen this comment a lot in social media, um, that... People have grown too accustomed to, you know, that high-action racing yep. that when they that when things go back to the way that they used to be, you know, nobody's happy. I was perfectly fine with the Indy 500. I mean, it was everything I expected.
0: It really comes down to what you watched the Indy 500 for, what era you started watching it in. Because if you're a recent fan, you grew up with the DW-12. 2012, 2013, 2014 we had record numbers of passing there. Um, and really if that's the standard that you grew up with, then this race isn't going to look as exciting. And if you started watching back in 08, 09, 2010 like I did, or even I guess you could say back in the 90s, uh, a yep. little bit more of a stretch guilty. there, but guilty guilty uh, as charged. <laughs> yeah, the old man of the of the group yeah. here. I <laughs> go get um, my walker. Yeah. I mean, I think that that felt like, for lack of a better word, a traditional Indy 500 to us. And I know Mm -hmm. you, David, in particular, were a critic of the 2013-style level of passing we had. Um,
2: Well, the the problem with the 2013 passing was that nobody wanted to lead the race. I think that was my main criticism. I think the 16 and 17 races by and large, were about as good as an Indy 500 can get. Sure, the wave around rule sucks, and there probably shouldn't have been 25 cars on the lead lap at the end of it, but you look at that competition at the front of the field, it doesn't get much better than that. But the 13 was just, it was ridiculous. I mean, imagine if like a a Viso had won that race. I think we'd talk about it a little bit differently. Uh, We kind of sweep it under the rug because Kanan won, and it was like, okay, he deserved one anyway.
0: Uh, I think... I summed it up the best way I could. It all comes back to the era that you grew accustomed to. So, uh, th- we didn't see a record number of lead changes here. and the but it action was still Shirley the seventh could be, most all time. Yeah, the action surely could have been better. Uh, and that's actually what I want to get into here, is what they could do, and I know you were talking on Twitter about if they make any modifications, they better be slight. Because you make any large modifications, you, you could have a problem on your hands. Mm-hmm. So, what do we think we could do next year to make these cars a little bit more competitive on Indianapolis?
2: Well, I think Kevin was there when, when we met Craig Hampson, who is the, uh, the lead engineer of the Bordet car. Worked for Newman Haas for several years. Uh, very experienced guy. And he said to us that they're really lacking for rear downforce. So he suggested that uh, they add some wickers uh, to the back of the, uh, of the wing there. Uh, <laughs> there was Which, a quote. by the way
1: by the way, they used to have wickers on the rear wing when they tested the car originally about a year ago. Um, because the... All right, so here's a little fact. Um, and this is from Greenlight, by the way. They said that the diecast, cast, the autograph car that we got, uh, was based off of the original um, car, the cars that tested with Montoya and Serbia last July. And they did have wickers on the rear wing.
2: Hmm. It's weird that those were removed then. I Here's the thing about the testing of, of, of the Universal Aero kits. It's kind of weird because it almost felt like they were really hitting it hard early on, and then they stopped uh, to, to provide the kits to the teams. But the the teams didn't actually build the cars up with the Universal Aero kits till almost like February. Uh, so we missed like a good probably six months of testing time that could have maybe been used that wasn't it just seemed like this car wasn't tested enough in in enough conditions to really get a good feel on it until we got to the month of may and then at that point you can't change anything so but again I mean, like like you said chris like i said i guess like you said like i said if if they make too big of modifications to this thing it's going to it's going to taint the product certainly because if you go too far in the opposite direction suddenly it's going to be like It's going to be too much of a good thing, I guess.
0: One thing I think that they do need to target and try to fix on the cars is the... Well, I guess this kind of ties into the rear downforce, is the car's stability when they're in the slipstream because we saw over the practice week and qualifying and the beginning of the race when it was pretty much caution-free that there was very low drama. And I think during the aero kit era... We grew accustomed to all this drama, all these crashes during qualifying and practice. Um, But when the cars were running on their own, there really wasn't a lot of drama. Uh, It's when you got into the slipstream of other cars, that's when it started to become a problem. And this race really kind of proved the cautions, breed cautions theory. Because once you had those cars lined up in a big pack... The, all that dirty air was pushing you around and you had drivers like Elio spin out and you had drivers like Danica, Bordet, they spun out. Um, so I think that the, if they could try some rear downforce modifications there, just try something to make the racing in the slipstream a little bit more consistent. Because all the crashes that we saw, all the spins that we saw in the slipstream were very unpredictable. Um, either they Um, happened or they didn't and it wasn't like a common oh if you're in the slipstream you're going to spin it really came down to kind of just fate at that point
2: well it's not just the uh, rear wing I've heard I've also heard that the front wing is very inefficient so when you get behind well there you go when you get behind somebody with an inefficient front wing whatever what little downforce you have on that thing is completely gone and so that's why we saw that and again it's the front wing is the biggest aerodynamic part on that car that's really producing a a whole lot of aerodynamic downforce at least on the top side of the car so i i I almost feel like they need to redesign it it's weird because if they redesign it they're going to cost the teams a whole lot of money and it's just it's weird again that's kind of my whole point is don't step too far because you're either going to cost everybody a whole lot of money, you're going to ruin the racing, or you're going to create a situation that you didn't anticipate and possibly something dangerous.
1: By the way, I want to go back to what David said about how they really didn't have that much time. To give you an idea, the Universal Arrow Kit ran in Indianapolis um, a whole three times before we actually saw it go out for official practice because you had the initial rollout with Servian Montoya, Then you had a test in the fall with Dixon and Hinchcliffe. So that's only four drivers.
2: And only two cars on track at once.
1: And then we, yeah, each time. And then then we got to um, a test we were supposed to have in March that didn't happen. And then when that test finally did happen, it was actually too late. And it was actually in the month of May.
2: It might Um, as well have been Indy 500 practice at that point, which it essentially was.
1: Yeah. So, you know, if that... If that test session would have happened, say, back in March, I'm pretty sure there would have been amendments to the Arrow kit. Very simple stuff, just simple wickers and stuff like that. But I think there would have been amendments to it. But since, you know, the timing got all screwed up because of weather, because it was really weird here uh, with snow in April, um, you know, it just didn't happen. And obviously they're going to amend it um, going forward. But again, as David said, hopefully it's nothing too dramatic.
0: Just jumping forward to the end of the race here, um, it was pretty much shaping up to be a classic Indy 500 economy run uh, finish, like we saw in 2016, only pretty much on steroids because you had drivers like Oriol Servi up front for Scuderia Corsa, and you had Stefan Wilson leading with all the way up until like four laps to go. And... You know, my fingers were crossed. It was really looking like it could be a surprise winner again. Um, Unfortunately, all of those guys uh, had to pit for fuel. Um, But that race got really, really close to what could have been a classic Indy 500 finish for the books.
2: Well, that's the thing that I've kind of thought about this, too, is that, like, Sure, it's fun to have surprise winners in the biggest race in the world. But if it's a surprise winner every single year, (laughs) it's no longer a surprise. Having a willpower win, well, yeah, sure, it's maybe boring to us hardcore people, no doubt about it. But at the same time, he's a champion of the sport, one of the winningest drivers, active or all-time. He needed an Indy 500 win for his resume. So I can't really complain about it. Sure. Do I wish that Wilson and Harvey and Servia had had fuel to the end, so that Power would have had to fight them for the win? Absolutely. But well, hold on, you know.
0: hold on. You said but, I mean, if every year it's a surprise you... winner, though. Sato last year wasn't really a surprise winner. He had pace all race long. Yeah, he was. He really wasn't. Yeah, though. he, he was, was a, surprise a surprise from the per-
2: from the perspective of not a lot of everybody. Kind of laughed before that. How soon we forget? Everybody, Sato was a joke. Before last year, everybody was like, ha he's the guy that crashed out in the last lap. He was almost like a Hildebrand, where that's all anybody talked about.
0: They don't anymore, because well, he won. Yeah, but Sato yeah, was I, quietly fast was... that entire month, is what people sort of decide to say. Sure, but yeah, so was, so was Chris, Hildebrand
2: that year.
1: But Chris, here's the thing, though. The Andretti guys were pretty much, oh, they said all month, I remember this, oh yeah, Sato, he doesn't really fit in that well with the team, he's not really happy, blah-blah-blah and he really wasn't he really wasn't there with the group you know he was sort of cast off into the B team side of things with uh, jack harvey you know he was borderline B team there um but you know saying sato wasn't a surprise is ridiculous
0: i'm just saying a surprise winner to me like i think rossi is a clear example of that Coming from what looked well, yeah, like it run a disastrous but, race. By no, run. your
2: logic, he was fast too. He set the fastest lap of the yeah, race when he won. No, but the, Sato won, never so.
0: had any real issues that made you think, all right, he's out of this. He's done during the race in 2017.
2: No, but he also no, didn't but... look like he was a race winner until the last 50 laps of it. You
1: well, know, that's there you like, go. That's if, like...
0: it, if it didn't look like he was a race winner until the last five laps of it, then that would be a surprise winner, in my opinion. But
1: I mean, Chris. Here's the logic we're trying to push to you, though. Does Jack Harvey sound like an Indy 500 winner?
0: (laughs) No. No, he doesn't. You know,
1: it could happen. But if he was running up front
0: all race long, then it wouldn't really be a surprise. Sato was quietly up front during 2017.
2: Yeah, but a surprise winner at the start of the race and a surprise winner at the end of the race is a little bit different because the race is like a symphony. It's like an opera. It plays out throughout it, and you know who the contenders are. Sure, uh, in the context of the race, uh, uh, Sato was not necessarily a surprise winner. But in the context of his career, in the context of the month leading up to that, certainly I think he was a surprise winner. Same with Rossi the year before. Uh, and that would have been the same thing for a, uh, certainly a Stephen Wilson or a Jack Harvey. Jack Harvey started on the last row of the grid. Uh, but by the same token, that also means that Alexander Rossi wouldn't have necessarily been a surprise winner if he had won from the back row. Even though it's an unlikely victory, he's already won it before. He was clearly fast throughout the day and clearly fast throughout the month. Jack Harvey was not. You dig?
0: All right. I, I kind of see where you're coming from, but whatever. Let's Let's move on from this argument. <laughs> You mentioned Rossi, I, I want Almighty to talk about... No, you right. know what, I want to... Kevin, that's not always true. Keep in mind, I said always. Uh, I want to talk <laughs> about Rossi, though, because he started 32nd and finished 4th. Yep. So we knew he wasn't Rossi... going to stay there for so very long. So, two oval races... Well, I mean, that's quite a given, because he's Andretti, but... We saw at Phoenix, as well, he was the guy who was saying, Oh, look at Rossi on the run. Indianapolis, look at Rossi on the run. <laughs> and it's only the second oval race of the season. So this is a guy who, at the beginning of 2016, was admittedly afraid of ovals. So I I think that it's proving, at this point, that he's one of the most daring oval drivers that IndyCar has at the moment, which is really impressive to see in only two seasons.
1: I mean, you got a guy who had a Grand Prix background, who was a basic nobody in IndyCar. Then he went out and won the Indy 500 on an economy run, and that gained his confidence, and now he is unstoppable.
2: Well, that what a great era to be alive for, uh, I would say, because not only do you have Rossi, who is, I mean, by far. I, I It's weird, because a lot of people, myself included, talk up Newgarden a lot, but I think if you put him in equal cars, I think Rossi would probably beat... Newgarden, uh, I think he's oh, probably easily. he's probably the most talented guy, not only in the series, but God, put him in a Mercedes and see what happens. You know, it's I think he's that talented and and it's so fantastic to live in this era where we've essentially got like the new AJ or Mario. I'm not necessarily comparing them, but it's like we've got the guys who are the faces of the sport. Now, the new Gardens, the Rossies, the Ray Halls, they're here they're American, and they're contenders. And it's uh, it's 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 going to be one of those things that will help grow the sport long-term. Hopefully they all stay.
0: Yeah, and I forget who he's passing exactly, but it was in the short shoot between one and two. Munoz. When, yeah, it was Munoz. And he's just got so just close to that wall. Yeah, teammate, you probably don't want to take yourself and him. Well, out, and but...
2: Munoz is one of the ballsiest guys too. So, like, Rossi out-ballsying... Munoz at Indy is is a pretty big statement. Pretty big statement.
1: And also, I wanted to point this out earlier, and now is a pretty good time. Some of the people who are saying that this year's Indy 500 sucked didn't witness it in person, and they were relying on the sucky ass ABC coverage. Yeah,
2: that was so, a big contributing factor to it. That's why everybody thought yeah. Davison was a like like dangerous, because they showed him twice on the broadcast. It was both times he got loose in Turn Three. <laughs> Outside of that, so, he was running pretty competitively.
0: The last thing I want to talk about here. Will Power coming away with the victory. Um, kind of a little bit of redemption from 2015 when Montoya took it away from him in one of the final laps.
1: Yes, yes, show me respect, motherfucker.
0: Oh, yes. If you didn't hear his <laughs> post-race radio communications, um, it's not safe for work. I'll just say that much.
2: By the way, that was definitely about Ed Carpenter. Yeah, that's No matter what, what, what he says, yeah. it's definitely about Ed Carpenter.
0: So uh what's funny is ed, ed after the it race
2: well ed after the race said that uh he would hire will someday <laughs> so i thought that
0: was pretty yeah funny. i don't know man though <laughs> will go from penske to ed carpenter eh.
2: stranger things have happened look yeah. at the guys that roger has gotten rid of in the past couple of years
1: hey man you know what that's just like um Kvyet being sent back down to scuderi Toro so
2: It takes one year of a guy crashing out of the Indy 500 like Montoya for Roger to go, hey, that Joseph Newgarden guy sure is fast. Bye, Juan. Go off to IMSA where you belong.
0: Aww. So we talked about how the Indy 500 was sort of your your traditionalist 500, if you will. Uh Um, If you want to talk about a race at Indianapolis that wasn't the same uh, level of competitiveness that was, in fact, more competitive. How about we just quickly talk about the Freedom 100? Oh, God. What a hell of a race that was. It wasn't even the closest (laughs) finish, which is saying something, but that race was 40 laps of green flag, no yellows, And even though it was only eight cars and really only seven competitive for most (laughs) of the race. (laughs) (laughs) Sad as it sounds, sounds, that was probably the best Freedom 100 I've ever seen. Oh, yes. And you had cars. I mean, and I don't think anyone has a problem with the Freedom 100 racing like that. It just puts on a good show. Um well, that's, so,
2: that's the thing. It's a developmental series. It's supposed to be 150% about the drivers. Make all the cars the same. Throw the drivers out there and see who has the biggest balls. That's the well, idea the of the problem, Freedom that's 100. That's
0: kind of what IndyCar is right now. All the cars are the same. But that's the topic. Yeah, but they don't idea.
2: race like it. <laughs> they do not race like it.
0: Um, but, yeah, I mean, just what a show that the Freedom 100 put on overall. Um, not too much to go over on that note. Again, only eight cars. Uh, But from two guys who were there in person, how would you rank that among the other ones that we've seen over the years? Oh,
2: my God. Oh, race, flag to flag, it was the best one ever. Was the finish as close as it's been or as exciting as it's been? (laughs) No. But you can't can't deny the racing quality. I mean, that was just spectacular. And such respectful driving, too. There was only maybe a couple times where I was like, oh, boy, they are going to wreck it because they're a bunch of, you know, very – High tea teenagers out there running into each other, but no, they they were very respectable most of the time, and it was a uh, it was a it was a hell of a show.
0: Well, the commentators, you have, of,
1: you have a bunch of teenagers that are trying to get next to the Cooper Tire girls.
2: Yeah, that's true. That's good incentive. That's good. Incentive. <laughs> that would, that explains why Hurta drove drove like he did at the freaking Grand Prix. But anyway. <laughs>
0: So the commentators in particular seem to be saying that Colton Herter would be a sitting duck out of turn four in the final Oh, we all
2: thought that, too. We all thought
0: that. But he really didn't even make it seem like a big threat. I mean, obviously, um, the finish was close, but... It really looked like he would be that sitting duck on the last lap, and it turned out that that just wasn't the case.
2: Well, award got a got an understeer out of four, I believe, if I remember correctly. He he was he was yeah, coming he in was behind. Yeah, he was running wide out of four. Well, he got an understeer. He was right behind Herta, and for whatever reason, he just got some dirty air, and the thing pushed up, and then that's where he lost the race because he lost just a little bit of momentum, and it was probably just enough momentum that uh, he couldn't pass him by the line.
1: Well, he also lost some out of two as well.
2: Yeah, but that's – I mean, with the Indy Lights cars, you can pass twice a lap. So, I mean, even if you screw up in two, you've got a—you've got half the track to get them back.
1: Well, let's face it. We didn't just see, like, twice a lap. Realistically, we saw every corner. There was a <laughs> pass yep, yep. And, like, I remember because we were sitting next to each other. Um, like, we thought that they were going to crash every two or three laps.
2: Oh, yeah. When they went through – I mean, I, that's the first time – I've ever seen like we, we all think of the 2013 finish where it was four wide and they were three wide for two corners. They were three wide the majority of the time they went into one and three. It was unbelievable, uh, especially because for Victor Franzoni, who I believe had a mechanical failure during the race, which is kind of unfortunate, uh, that kind of knocked him out of it because he he put a three wide move on the first freaking lap in turn three. And, and I, I, I have to applaud the. Uh, the the gusto on that one because didn't, that was just when you, you
1: pass, i was gonna say didn pass half the field in a lap
0: didn't for have a tire puncture
2: i don't know we did we couldn't really tell i mean we were kind of far down in turn one so it's kind of hard to see the pit lane I mean, all, all i know is then, he came in and out of the pits a couple of times
0: yeah that's they were yeah, trying not to go a lap down because they were hoping for a caution to come up and it never did but uh um, allowed
1: our new Lord and Savior, Davy Hamilton Jr. to finish up in seven.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the uh just ending off this episode here, just what we have to look forward to, the Lama test is this weekend. So this is where we can see the first uh true indication of what the pace will be for Lama or not, or the opposite. If you want to not show your pace in sandbag, here come the names. Um Toyota. Oh. All right. I thought uh, Kevin pay. was going to say another team in particular, but all right, we're not going to go there. Um, uh, Corvette,
2: Corvette, Toyota—they're sandbagging already. Are there going to be three Toyotas this year or just two? two? Two. Oh no. They don't need a third one. Boy, well, I—I'll I, tell you what. Uh, here's a hot take. That's a mistake. That's a big mistake, and Sweet they the will podium. pay for it. That's a big mistake. Is that—is that your expert opinion? There. That's Mr. my David? expert opinion. There. That's a big mistake. You, they well, couldn't even win the race they couldn't even win the race last year with 3 cars and they think reducing it to 2 is a good idea big big mistake toyota you're going to pay well, for that
1: one okay so let's put last year versus this year in perspective last year they were battling the porsches and we've seen what happened with the 3 cars how they virtually all died in the same hour
2: 2 of the 3 cars got hit by lap cars though i mean that's all it takes that's all it takes
1: um, no only one of them got hit by a lap car the the eight car had a hybrid failure. The reason that they finished as far down as they did, which was seven, was because the Porsche guys had the same issue. They went on to win the race because they replaced it in such a faster time. My point being, the only way Toyota can lose Le Mans this year is if they have, if it's really, really hot like it was last year and the hybrid systems fail.
2: Or if a Ferrari knocks them off the road. Somebody call Rob Kaufman. We need to make IndyCar or uh, Le Mans. And Michael exciting. Waltrip. And Michael Waltrip. AF no, Waltrip, but baby, No, the Kaufman's a guy who almost killed. What's his nut? Uh, Latterer. Bring
1: back AF Waltrip Racing. What about uh, Lauterer?
2: Yeah. Uh, he freaking almost killed Lauterer, didn't he? Not. No, it was Rockefeller. No, Rockefeller. He almost killed Rockefeller. I always get Rockefeller and Lauterer confused. I don't. I don't know why.
0: Yeah, uh, well, Rockefeller's right, in Corvette so... this year, so there's still a possibility. We also have uh, IndyCar and IMSA, at Belle Isle <gasps> this weekend. Boring. Okay, I thought I just heard a, a snore. But um, <laughs> uh IMSA is only bringing their you know, prototype it, in GTD classes because GTLMs and Le Mans. You know
1: what? You know what's would probably be easier, or you know, would probably be more entertaining than the races themselves. Milwaukee, wondering, wondering, Michigan Five Hundred. Robbed at
2: Detroit. Oh God,
0: Kevin. The only Detroit. recent drivers that have gotten robbed were in Indianapolis. <laughs>
2: Or Monaco, or no, that was Mexico. It was, uh, it Brazil? No, it was, Brazil. no Brazil. it was
1: Sao Paulo.
2: Yeah, but Man, Bernie, Bernie Ecclestone got beat up one time.
0: Hey, that sounds like an F one race. F one's <laughs> going to uh, Montreal next weekend, so we'll keep, uh-huh, keep posting on Montreal. Uh, and the big one, Le Mans, is in two weeks' time, and I'm really hyped about that. So we'll have a whole barrage of. Lamar content coming this month might even end up doing a couple more of those extra episodes uh, before Lamar and we hinted at a special with Ricky Taylor however my work got in the into the way of that and then Kyle like I said has also been really unreliable so that might not happen before Lamar so we'll keep you posted on that because he's obviously a very busy guy at this time of year. I mean, um, it'd
1: probably be more interesting after Lamar because we, have, we could debrief with him about it. Yeah.
0: Just,
2: just hope he doesn't uh, do the th- same thing his brother did last year because then he'll be in trouble. Oh, no. Oh. Hey, Oh.
0: Hey. Um, but
1: hey, Rockefeller's back at Lamar for the first time since 2012.
0: Yep. Call up AF Waltrip. <laughs> anyway, do you Which two AF- have.
1: That was the last time AF Waltrip raced at Lamont too. <laughs>
2: Yeah, they weren't yeah. invited to the party anymore. Brian Vickers well,
1: okay. I mean, let's face it, they were the ones that drove a flaming Ferrari down pit lane.
2: <laughs> oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, that's a big no no. <laughs> yeah. They probably that's, that's, burned that's... out of their pit every uh, every lap too. They backed I mean, up on the pit like lane. This, that's... That bur- running
1: a burning car down the pit lane and then refueling said car—what <laughs> um,
2: well, works that- in NASCAR, man? Just duct tape to some bitch. <laughs>
1: you know that's about as effective, at, or that's about as a, that's about as a, uh, applauded by the organizers as reversing down the pit lane. Well, that's Something what I that said. Toyota you know, Toyota did
2: get, get the duct tape out, reverse down the pit lane, burn out, do all that fun stuff. You know what we I mean, should like
0: do? Is, there's been a lot of banter going on here, even though I. Sp- Hope that that wouldn't happen, but we should just do a thing for everyone who made it this far into the episode. Here is that Simon Pagino, uh, interview that Kevin got after Indy Five Hundred qualifying that we promised last week. But of course, I was busy and Kyle wasn't I was available. gonna say
1: you better use that so because I drove. So there you I go. Drove.
0: We're gonna put it right here, right now. So we're here with IndyCar
1: driver Simon Pagino, um, who is definitely one of the guys to watch coming into this weekend. So you guys got into the top nine, you held the pole for quite some time. What was that feeling of nervousness like?
3: Uh, very high. It's uh, two days of uh, high stress. Qualifying is definitely um, one of those most stressful moments in, uh, in racing all around. Uh, my whole life has been uh, about racing, but this moment in Indy is just very special. So. Getting the pole was, um, at first, was incredible and uh, I really hope we could keep it, but uh, Carpenter did a better job and and got it.
1: And obviously, you guys weren't really the favorites because you have a hometown guy going up against, you know. um, But overall though, you got second, which is something really impressive. So how does the car really feel to you? How does it translate from the old Chevy Aero kit from last year?
3: It's a good question, Uh, the the new new Aero kit is a lot more um, edgy to drive. it's it's a little bit more difficult to follow in traffic it's a little bit more tire wear it's a lot more driving involved uh, which i love i'm very excited about it it's it's more important to get the car well balanced um and uh and on sunday it's going to be very difficult to um to be the best you can be so um so yeah i'm, I'm looking forward to it i think it's gonna be a great challenge um have you ever had have you had any code brown moments yet this month no code brown this month no uh i've had a few in phoenix but uh not here yet so uh it's been pretty smooth sailing
1: and um your little autograph battle with joseph newgarn how how's that going for you
3: well i think it's going really well i think um i think it's pretty much the end of it i think we've escalated to a whole high different level i would say and and i i think it's pretty much over so <laughs> i guess i won but uh, joseph uh, told me he was done with it so uh it was fun it was uh one of those things that was very organic we didn't uh really calculate anything and nobody got really involved except us and that was really fun
1: um how confident do you feel with your car going into race day because you got time to practice uh with the race setup uh do you feel pretty confident
3: yeah tonight i think we we just practiced uh last practice before friday cup day and i thought we we're pretty strong in traffic um obviously we're starting up front so that's gonna help um we need a little bit more front uh grip to to make it even better and and i think we can find it okay cool thank you thank you
0: hope you enjoyed that one um (laughs) kind of randomly placed and out of context and out of order because the indy 500 already happened they're all in detroit right now but we had to get that out there because kevin drove out of his way to get it
2: you know if you'd put those up separately that would have been (laughs) i'll just put it on twitter separately but (laughs) i know but you should have put them up as soon as you got access to the file i'll just like simon pagino interview
0: so that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the Rain Race Podcast. Thank you for Kevin, or Thank you to Kevin for joining once again. Thank you to David for subbing for Kyle. Yeah, Thanks look at that. Kyle Super for sub. Just call me Roberto reliable. Moreno. Absolutely. And we'll see you uh, hopefully again on Monday. We'll be recapping Detroit and the Lamont. Boring. Test, all that good stuff. <laughs> Hope you all enjoyed this one, and we'll catch you in the next one.